You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ramskins and goatskins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light, with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. 
and the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Back when I was at uni, I remember going deep underground to hear a lecture on probably uh, equity law or, or something like that. And the, uh, the lecturer fired up the PowerPoint presentation, which was pretty high tech in those days. And she started reading the dot points off the slides. Anyway, all is normal. About 15 minutes in though, people started shuffling a little bit and, and looking at each other, puzzled. People started muttering. And eventually the lecturer stopped and shuffled through her, her papers and, and, and realized that yes, we had all heard this before. In fact, she'd given the exact same lecture to us the week before. And if you've been reading through with us, as, tracking with us as we've been going through the book of Exodus, you may be feeling like, hang on, have I heard all this before? You know what? You have. Remember back a couple of weeks ago, uh, chapter 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Well, here we go this week. S see if you can spot the sim similarities. Bazadal made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. So what's going on here? Has Moses accidentally copy and pasted while he was typing out the book of Exodus? No, actually something really significant is going on. And to understand, let's rewind a little bit and get some context. So remember last week, Moses is high up the mountain of God, speaking directly to God, and he receives the specifications for the tabernacle. What is a tabernacle? Well, they've come to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the place where God has chosen to reveal himself to Moses, but they're going to keep going. They've got a long journey ahead of them to get into the promised land. So will they say goodbye to God at this point? No, actually God is going to come with them. God is going to go with them. So you see the tabernacle described in a couple of ways. It's, it's a home and it's a meeting place. It's a tent where God is visibly present, living amongst his people. On the other hand, it's also sometimes called a tent of meeting, uh, the meeting place where you go to meet with God, a place where they can approach God on his terms in person and express their thanks and receive forgiveness. Now, the tabernacle is not like a, a synagogue or a church where you go to meet with other people so much. It's uh, it's not a big place for gatherings. It's not probably big enough for you to have a, a big gathering in it. You would come up one by one. One person from your household would come and bring a sacrifice on behalf of the household at the designated time. And then the designated special workers in their protective clothes uh, would, after washing carefully, would take that sacrifice and do the right thing with it. So it's a bit less like a packed out church gathering and a bit more like, say, click and collect under lockdown restrictions. That's the tabernacle. It's, it's like a Mount Sinai on wheels, enabling God's presence to continue with them on their journey to the promised land. 
like a cross between a, a, a tour bus and a temple. But while Moses is receiving these instructions for the tabernacle, what are the Israelites up to? Well, they're making the golden calf, right? Which is either a, a false god or a misguided attempt to worship the true God in the wrong way. Either way, whether they're worshiping wrong gods or the right God in the wrong way, it doesn't matter. The result is idolatry. You see, true worship, true worship is about approaching God on his terms, at the place, at the time, in the way that he makes available for us. Anything apart from that is false religion. And as we saw last week, God sees them make this golden calf and he sees it as a betrayal, as idolatry. It puts their relationship in peril. And he announces actually that he's going to be leaving them at this point. He's not going to continue with them on this journey. They're finished. It's a bit like an affair on a wedding night. It's not a good way to start this new covenantal relationship. And seriously, this could have been the end of the story. But Moses prays. He puts his hope not in who the Israelites are and what they've done, but in who God is, in his nature, slow to anger, full of compassion. And God gives them a second chance. He renews their covenant. And then God reminds the people of their marriage vows, the law, by giving them the Ten Commandments on stone tablets, again, reminding them of their obligations in this relationship. And so that's where chapter 35 comes, with a repeat of the same instructions that we heard for the tabernacle. You see, a moment ago, it looked like God wasn't coming with them on the journey. A moment ago, it looked like the relationship was over before it even begun. But now, everything God has told them to do, it's happening. The tabernacle is happening. God is coming with them and they're back on track. So it's important for us to see this repetition is not boring. It's not dull. It's actually purposeful. It's profound. It's a beautiful way to finish, actually, the book of Exodus. Think about it. Up to this point, the Israelites have done everything you could think of to ruin this relationship, to turn God away from them forever. But now, against the odds, despite their sin and rebellion, we see that the tabernacle is taking shape before our eyes. Everything that God commanded them, down to the letter, is happening just as described. It's all there. The only difference is the order. It's described from the point of view of the builders who are making it in the order that they're constructing it. 18 times we're told that Moses did as the Lord commanded. It's beautiful, it's beautiful to see, isn't it? Because for a moment there, we thought we would never get to this point. Exodus shows us time and time again that humans are stubborn and disobedient, but God never walks away from his people. He never backs away from his promises. But, you know, there's actually a couple of other things that we can notice here apart from the repetition. And the first is just the generosity of the people. Notice where the raw materials come from for this building project. Now, Moses could have forced them. He could have taxed them to give to the building project, but that's not what happens. Check it out in chapter 35, verse 5. Whoever is of generous heart, Moses says, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. 
as if that's going to work. People aren't going to voluntarily give money to this. But look, they do. Verse 21, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of the meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. No one's forcing them. No one's twisting their arm. The people aren't reluctant even. They aren't paying taxes out of duty. It's whoever wants to contribute. The word heart is repeated in this section. And I think it's meant to emphasize that there's, a, there's something that's changed here for the Israelites, something that's changed on the inside. And in fact, this actually creates a problem. Uh, check it out, verse 5. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gives the command, and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution, for the sanctuary. They've got too much stuff. They don't need any more. Stop bringing your generous gifts. What a wonderful problem to have. By the way, this is no small amount of raw materials. Um, take the gold, just the gold, for example. We're told there's over 29 talents of pure gold. That's 875 kilograms, by my count, of pure gold. Right, this week, gold is trading at around about 79,000 Australian dollars per kilo. So we're looking at, by my maths, $70 million of materials plus GST and labor. And that's just the gold. Then there's the premium hardwood, the acacia wood, the, the silver, the bronze, and the beautiful hand-spun fabrics. Once upon a time, I spent my entire life savings, which wasn't much, on one piece of gold. I was at Bible college, I was a student, I didn't have a lot of money, but I, I cleared my bank account out to buy an engagement ring for Steph, my wife, because that's where my heart was, is. If you want to see where your heart is, one place to start is your bank balance. Why did people give up $70 million of gold? Because their hearts were moved. And that's why uh, here at church, uh, we're invited each week to support the mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. But Nobody makes me give. No one twists my arm. In fact, no one knows how much I give. That's deliberate. It's all anonymous because as believers, we are to give to mission and mercy, not because we're made to, but because we're moved to. Not because we have to, but because we want to. I want to see the light stay on. I want to see the good news go out. I want to see the hungry of Melbourne fed. So that's the generosity. The other thing I notice is the skill. Notice just how much detail in these passages is given uh, about the craftsmen uh, who will make the tabernacle. Verse 30, then Moses said to the people of Israel, see the Lord has called by name Betzalel the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. In the original Hebrew, there's a really lovely parallel here between those who were generous of heart who brought the money and these gentlemen who are skilled of heart, who make, or wise of heart, uh, who make the tabernacle. The willing of heart bring the resources and the wise of heart make it happen. 
There are chapters and chapters of detailed descriptions from here on about how the tabernacle and all the other bits were built. It's incredible detail, the, the lengths of fabric, the, the particular colors that are chosen, where the things are joined between the different pieces of fabric. And I, I think the tabernacle should be beautiful. It has to be beautiful because it reflects, it's a microcosm, if you like, of creation, of the world that God has made. It reflects the design and the artistry with which God has made this world, of the God who made heaven and earth for his glory. The world wouldn't look the way it does if God didn't care about beauty. And notice also, I love this, how God asks for the two craftsmen by name. Betzalel, who we saw here, and then um, Aholiab, who is mentioned in the next verse. He asks for them by name because of their skill, artistry, design, their aesthetic sense, the quality of their work. All these things are important to God. He knows who he wants. He's not shopping on price. He's, he wants quality. And God specified even before the golden calf disaster that these are the two men that he wanted to make the tabernacle. God knows who the best are and only the best will do for this project. We, uh, we love our laneways in Melbourne and uh, long before lockdown I, I sat down in the laneway cafe with a mate of mine who was visiting just off uh, Elizabeth Street I think it was and uh, he's a stonemason with, with years and years of experience. He's one of the few people I think alive who, who still know how to take a massive chunk of rock and, and cut it by hand meticulously uh, measuring and cutting and, and shaping it. It's, it's a dying art, it really is. There's very few people who can do it. It's difficult, it's a labor of love, and it's crucial for restoring many of the beautiful heritage buildings that we have in this country. Anyway, we were sitting down for coffee and uh, he spotted a wall of the alleyway, which I'd walked past a thousand times and never noticed. To you or me, it just looks like any other Melbourne alleyway wall, a laneway wall, but he pointed out how it had been so carefully constructed, how the, how the stones had been chosen from local sources, how the lines had been set probably a hundred years ago and carefully observed, how someone had recently tried to repair it with concrete rather than lime mortar mix, and that's apparently a terrible thing to do, and how that poor repair will probably ruin the wall one day. Anyway, he was passionate about this wall, and seeing it through his eyes made me appreciate the artistry which had gone into it. Many of you I know are likewise creative people. You don't work with gold or animal hide, probably, but you resonate with these descriptions of care, of skill, of a grand vision executed with impeccable attention to detail. I know here at church I've met artists, I've met architects, designers, pastry chefs, builders, musicians, screenwriters. Praise God that you are a part of our church. You care about the right lime mortar for the stone wall and the correct font kerning and the perfect kick, kick drum sound uh, on the recording because I think you were made in the image of God, the image of the God who loves to create beautiful things. And he wants you to use your gifts to fill the silence with beautiful music, to bring beauty and order into chaos. So I want to say work on your craft, create space for your craft, do it for the glory of God and with his guidance. 
Now, some of us will use our gifts here on Sundays in the church gathering, and that's great. Did you know that there's a team of people who are obsessed about getting the right lenses and the right lighting? Uh, There's Wayne behind the camera right now who's that kind of person. Praise God. Others, well, you'll use your gifts given by God to bring him glory beyond the Sunday gathering. Just as the theologian James Davison Hunter puts it, reflecting the beauty of God's creation in art or music is nothing less than an act of worship. Before lockdown, uh, Brad, who's in my gospel community, invited us to his poetry reading. He was in Richmond before the lockdown. He's, He's a professional screenwriter, but each morning before work, he gets up very early to labor with words to create the most incredible poetry I've heard in a long time. Hearing him read his works was just a privilege. I'm still thinking about some of the phrases and some of the images and the ideas that he created. And what struck me listening to him read his poems is that as a great Christian writer, his poetry is not just for the church, for people in the church, but it speaks to the realities of life and death in a way that speaks beyond the church to the world. Now, um, I should say that the emphasis of the uh, tabernacle passages is not just on the beauty of the final object, but also the labor of love that produced it, the obedience and the devotion. So I don't want to say that you have to be the best in the world in order to bring glory to God in your art. As uh, one of my guitarist friends used to tell people in his church ministry, do your best with what you've got for God. And I think it's good advice. Now, but on the other hand, I do want to push back a little bit on some um, artists or church musicians particularly who I sometimes come across um, with an attitude that close enough is good enough when it's for church. I once had a bass player tell me that he didn't want to over-rehearse things before Sunday church. And I said to him, Steve, I say this from a place of love, but Steve... You've never been in danger of over-rehearsing anything. We want to do our best with what we've got for God. So if you have a skill, can I encourage you, challenge you even, to be like Betzalel, to be like Aholiab, and nurture and develop it. To see its value and, and, and whether it's for church on Sunday or beyond the, sec- the, the gathering in your secular vocation, can I challenge you to pursue excellence in whatever you do for the glory of God. Back to the tabernacle. Everything's complete. The lampstands are ready. The elaborate fabric of the tent is ready to place over the poles. The altar and the ark are ready to go. But what's missing? God. God's missing. Remember, true worship is about approaching God on his terms through the means that he provides. It's not the quality of the workmanship in the end or the expense of the tabernacle that make it this holy place. It's the fact that God chooses to fill it to be present in it with his visible presence. So once the artists are done and the priests are appointed and they've got all their get up, God chooses to come and to fill this place with his presence. It's incredible. Chapter 40, verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As always, it's not ultimately our skill or the quality of our worship that brings God into our presence. We are invited to live with him by grace, only by grace. 
Because these people have demonstrated, haven't they, time and time again, that they are not worthy to have God live with them. And yet God takes up residence right here. I asked my gospel community this week what they'd learned about themselves and about God in this series through Exodus. It's simple. Nikki said this, I'm Israel. Ben said a similar thing. He said, I'm a slave learning to be free. And God is so patient, faithful, steadfast and benevolent. I am more broken than I could believe, but he is more gracious than I could ever have imagined. Five minutes ago, remember, five minutes ago, the Israelites were betraying him and worshipping a statue of a farm animal. And yet here we are at the end of the book with God still coming close, inviting them to meet with him, to live near him. And as Shane in my gospel community pointed out, now that God has delivered us, the church, delivered us from slavery to sin, and now that he dwells amongst us by his spirit, we are called to that same mission of living distinctively and declaring his excellencies. We are priests. And so that's the end of Exodus. The Israelites began as slaves in Egypt, oppressed and exploited. God brought them out of slavery into freedom. He made them into his own people. And now finally, they're ready to live with him. God's visible presence in their midst. So maybe you're thinking, great, where can I go? Uh, buy my tickets to go meet with God. Where is this tabernacle now? Well, you'll have to keep reading, but here are some spoilers. See, despite all the effort into creating the tabernacle, the tabernacle was actually only ever meant to be a temporary building. While the Israelites are wandering in the desert on their way to their permanent home in the promised land, God will be with them in the tent, but King David and his son Solomon will eventually bring it to Jerusalem. They will unite the nation, and so God will no longer need to be on the move in a tabernacle. By the year 959, a permanent temple will be built. Even more amazing than this tabernacle. A permanent place where God's people can go and meet with him, to do business with him, to seek the forgiveness of sins. An eternal reminder of God's presence and protection and blessing on his people. But there's a but. For a holy God to stay living with his people, they will need to be different to the nations around them. No more golden calves, no more oppressing the poor, God is holy, which means that he cannot be anything but holy. He cannot be around anything that isn't holy. And I'm sorry to report that the uh, sorry tale of Israel from this point onwards is about them taking the temple and God's presence for granted. They disbelieved, they disrespected, they disobeyed continually. They had flings with other fake gods all the time. And eventually, after years of warning from the prophets, God gave them essentially what they were asking for. He left them. The prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of God's glory getting up and just going out of the temple. And in 586 BC, that horrifying vision came true. The temple was soon destroyed by the Babylonians. And you can still go today to where the temple was, but it's long gone. Ezekiel, though, and the other prophets, they saw something in this time as well. They saw that there would be a time in which God would dwell in a different way, not in a man-made temple, but in a new way, 
they saw a new exodus, a new temple, a new nation from all nations, not just the descendants of Abraham. So fast forward 500 years, and on a hill north of Jerusalem, a Samaritan woman is, on, uh, is out in the heat of the day drawing water at a well. And Jesus comes up to her, and they get talking, and the subject of worship comes up. Her religion, the Samaritans, they worship on Mount uh, Gerizim. The Jews worship at Jerusalem. And so they talk about it, and she's probably expecting Jesus, a Jew, to tell her that she needs to get her worship right and go worship in Jerusalem at the temple. That's where she should meet with God. But what he says to her, nobody is expecting. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The, uh, the hour that is coming is Jesus' way of talking about his death. Through his death, we receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just as the, the tabernacle had an altar at which people could bring sacrifices for sin and a basin so sinful humans could wash and come into God's presence, so Jesus offers himself on the cross on our behalf, on your behalf, to make a way for you to come near to God to live in his presence. Uh, Just as the the tabernacle was filled with God's presence, so by his spirit, God lives with us today. And we can experience his presence wherever we are in the name of Jesus. And just as the tabernacle contained a box, an ark, which had God's revelation, the Ten Commandments in it, so through the spirit and through the word, we are able to meet with God in his revelation of his character and will, ultimately in Jesus I was reflecting, we've had over 200 days of lockdown here in Melbourne. And there's lots of people that we can't see, at least not in person. But as much as I miss gathering with you all in person, face to face, I take great comfort right now in knowing that we can still meet face to face with God by his spirit. Through the spirit and in the name of his son, Jesus, you can meet with God right now where you are, I don't know, in your kitchen or wherever it is. You can meet with God wherever you're joining us from. And every part of my day, from the point at which I put on my Ugg boots and log into Zoom to when I put the rubbish out at night, whatever the small world I'm inhabiting at this time, every part of that day can be consecrated to God, can be an opportunity for me to be conscious of the power and presence of God by His Spirit. And I want to invite you to take those opportunities, even today, to pause and to be aware of the great privilege of having God dwell with you by His Spirit. But maybe there's a different obstacle in your way. Maybe you feel there's a different obstacle in your way, that there's something stopping you from approaching God right now, of being in His presence. Uh, Maybe you feel unworthy, even, of God. Maybe you feel shame. Maybe you have reason to feel shame. I don't know. But here's the thing. The tabernacle teaches us that God wants to live with you anyway. That he provides a way for unworthy people like the Israelites to come and be with him. So don't wait. Please don't wait. 
to get your life in order before you come to Jesus. You'll never do it. And in fact, Jesus says that he's come not to call the healthy, but the sick. The healthy don't need a doctor, he said. It's the sick. And that's what he came to do, not to call righteous people, but to call sinners like you, like me, like the Israelites. And here's the thing. Jesus knows you better than I know you, better than anyone knows you, better than probably you want anyone to know you. He knows the horrible things you've done, the things that you would never want said out loud, and yet he still invites you to come close. So will you take him up on that invitation? Maybe even now. I'm going to pray. I'd invite you to join me in this. Almighty God, who delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the freedom of the promised land, we confess that we are all too much Israelite, slow to learn, quick to fall back into bad habits. We have done what we shouldn't have done. We've left undone what we should have done. But thank you, God, that you are slow to anger, that you are full of compassion. You forgive those who repent. And so for the sake of your son who died for us, I ask that you would forgive us. You would cleanse us and change us. By your Holy Spirit, would you enable us to live for you as the nation of priests that you have called us to be, standing out as a light in a dark world? And we pray this confidence, confident in your forgiveness and your mercy for your glory and for the good of the world. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, Or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.